This is Amanda. And this is Rachel. And this is Vocal Perspective. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Vocal Perspective. We are here this week with Amy Malkoff. She is a longtime fixture in the acapella community. She's a performer and a songwriter, and you may also know her really well because she works on nearly every festival that's ever existed, every project she's been there. So hi, Amy. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Just in full honesty, this is the second time we've had to do this interview because technology sometimes doesn't work. So Amy was kind enough to get up really early in the morning on a Sunday for this, which I think actually almost fitting, Amy, given all of the work that you've done and all of the sacrifices you've made for the community. So thanks for making one more for this podcast. Anytime. (laughs) So let's start off. Maybe tell everyone a little bit about how you got into this crazy little world of ours. Well, I did chorus and theater from a very early age and I mean like five and then when I got to college as is typical for many of us joined a group there interestingly I did not get in the first year we're seeing a pattern with that All of these people that have lasted so long in acapella, they're like, oh, you know, when I first auditioned, I didn't get in. I'm the same. I didn't get in. I think it makes you work a little harder. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That's good. I guess. It was pretty devastating. And then because it's a small college, Kenyon College, about 1,400 people with only a few groups at that time and only a few more now. So there was a lot of competition. And so got in the second year and then was musical director for years three and four. And during that time, I just really had the feeling that this could have some viability outside of college. And we were gigging outside of college and doing some some pretty interesting gigs. At one point, we did a gig for the CEO or founder of Victoria's Secret. Ooh. Interesting. And then just continued on after that, creating my own groups after college. After college, I went right to grad school. I went to the New England Conservatory of Music and wasn't performing at all there because I was in a theory program. But after that, I started creating my own groups and performing. And then sometime before that, right after college, I ended up running into a guy uh, whose name is Stephen Baird, who is a master street performer, but also very much an arts advocate and an arts organizer and he taught me how to be an arts manager do my own booking do my own business from the ground up and then I started doing booking for a venue in Harvard Square called the Nameless Coffee House which has been around since 1966 awesome continuously running until fairly recently and a lot of big names came through there in its existence. And I ended up doing the booking there for eight years. And that was a pretty seminal experience right out of college to learn how to run an institution like that. And I only recently, I recently became involved with it again, but we're not, we're not that active right now. Well, I mean, I think that's an important piece of that, that I think a lot of students coming out of college now, they want to do this professionally. They want to keep going. But the arts management piece, unless you have someone else that can do it for you, is a really important piece to learn. Maybe tell us a little bit about what challenges are there and what's a different kind of mindset that you need to take on to actually do the business side that, you know, the management that gets you the gigs so that you can actually sing. Well, you're exactly right. Obviously, either somehow you find a manager who wants to do it for you. And if you're not making a ton of money, then it's either someone who just really loves you and believes in your vision, or you're doing it yourself. And Mm -hmm. um, I've 
as a performer, I wanted to be performing. <laughs> and so right. the deal was, if I wanted to be performing, then I was going to have to start hustling for gigs. And so that's what I did for all of my groups. And I do not love it. It's pretty miserable. <laughs> but it's a necessary evil if you want to be out there. And it's also a necessary evil if you want to be presenting others, which I also felt pretty strongly about. And you just sort of learn from the ground up. It is so much easier now than it was when I started. Yes, <laughs> I can imagine. Literally mailed through the mail and phone calls. And now it is just exponentially easier. So people who are starting out now, you have got it so much easier at least as far as communication and technology goes. So organization, I think, is the key. Yeah. I mean, I work with a lot of students now that, that want to do this. And of course, a lot of our clients, they're coming out of college and they're like, we want to go pro. And I'm like, OK, well, you can come and work with me and we'll we'll just wrap you into our management program. Or here's all of the things that you need to do. Do you have 12 hours for me to just like give you the brief overview? <laughs> and I think it's really good for everyone to do it even if they don't ultimately have to be doing it forever, but just to be to learn how to do it and learn what, what goes on behind the scenes. Right. So from there, I know you got involved pretty heavily in CASA very early on, and that has ballooned into you being the go-to person for pretty much every event I think I've ever worked on or been to. So tell us a little bit about what you've done there. I mean, I know we could sit here and talk for hours about what you've done, but I think a lot of times people think that these festivals just kind of appear and they just kind of happen. And it's really people like you that are making the wheels turn and make everything happen. Yeah, I will tell you about CASA, but that just reminded me that one of the events that I currently work on is Haunted Harmonies, which is what you're going to come to again this year. I know, I can't wait so much fun. It is, and it's, it's a one-day event in Salem in October. So it's crazy and fun and Halloween-y. And people say to me all the time, I'll mention that I'm working on it months in advance, and people say to me all the time, I can't believe you're working on an event that happens in October in February. Like, are you kidding? <laughs> this is how all these events run. You know, you know, it's almost as soon as the event is over, you start working on the one for the next year. They're just massive. Exactly. And CASA runs several events. They didn't when I started, but I started out doing content stuff. It then became essentially the editor-in-chief of all the content on the website, helping with other event management things and was involved with, I worked with them for, I don't know, probably four or five years, maybe longer. <laughs> And then moved on to other events that I'm now doing. So what would you say is one of the biggest challenges of working on a festival, of putting these big, huge, you know, either day long or weekend long or sometimes even longer events? What do you wish people knew about the challenges that go on behind the scenes? That it is a massive production. There are so many moving parts and the teams for these events are usually not that big and everyone's wearing multiple hats. One challenge for our community is that we don't have a ton of viable headlining groups, groups that will be available, but will actually have some draw who bring people out. And I'm always looking forward to new groups who can come and fill, literally fill those seats and, um, and do a great show and also offer something that's both entertaining and educational. Right. So you've seen probably all of the potential possible headlining acts, I'm, I'm sure, over over your time working in this area. What do you think makes 
for lack of a better word, a perfect headliner. Yes, they have to have the educational piece. Yes, they have to be entertaining. But we have seen a few that have that extra special sparkle. And what do you think that that might be? The groups that have worked together for a good solid while and have formed a bond personally and musically, and you can see that on stage, I would put stellar musicality high up there, but not not as high as as some would think because it's the entertainment piece the interacting with the audience ability to interact with the audience is key you want to take care of the audience and send them home with a, a little more peaceful a little happier than they left and and not every group can do that yeah I mean I think that's especially important now I know in our community sometimes it's like oh well you're singing top 40 like that's so lame. But when you go out and you meet with these audiences, especially audiences that aren't dug really deeply into the acapella community, that's what they want to hear. I mean, I sing Taylor Swift. Do you think that I enjoy singing Taylor Swift or find any deep musical fulfillment out of it? No, but the kids love it. So that's what we do. And I'm glad to see some more groups are starting to recognize that again. And we're kind of getting out of that emo, self-serving, self-indulgent music. (laughs) My husband and I call it the self-indulgent music that You know, yes, I love singing all the crunchy stuff. Yes, I love singing the esoteric stuff. But maybe, maybe that's not what people want to hear. You can do that and be entertaining. I would see see the swingles. They sort of embody all of those things. They're entertaining and charming and incredible musicians. And they're doing music that is thoughtful and difficult, but it's also accessible and entertaining. Right. Again, it moves you. So let's go back to Haunted Harmonies. You, you mentioned that briefly as your current project. It's as far as I understand, and you know, I've, I've been able to go once and I'm looking forward to coming again this fall. It's a very different style of festival in which you have kind of combined it. You've added it onto the existing Salem haunted happenings and all of the fun that happens in Salem in October. How did that all come about, like to add an acapella festival to you know, an event that's pretty much been going on as long as anyone can remember. Uh, the city of Salem, which is incredibly supportive of the arts and just Salem is very much an art city. Pretty much everything you'd be interested in is going on there. I was just there yesterday. It's not any special day, but there's just so much going on. It's just hopping. They were looking for more events that are family friendly, believe it or not, they're There aren't a ton of entertainment events that are family-friendly. And so Salem Haunted Happenings, which is their month-long event of events the entire month of October, we are now part of that. So we're an official Salem event. We are a day-long event this year. It's October 5th. And it does function like a regular festival in that we have some classes, some master classes. We have some workshops. And we have a concert at the end. We also have a competition. Where it differs is that it's very much weaved into Salem and the environment. One of the things we do is we send the groups out onto the street at pre at a predetermined spot with sound and everything to street sing. Every group gets, I think, about 20 minutes to interact with the crowds. And the crowds are just massive at that time. It, mm-hmm. it also happens to be the same weekend as a big street festival so the crowds are even bigger than they normally would be and so they get to go out and literally interact with the crowd and they also make money back when they go out and do that we have little cauldrons (laughs) that they can put out 
Everything is so kitschy and so cute, and I love it. So our registration fee is very, very low, but then you can also make money back when you're out there street singing. And then we have, this year, we've combined the competition and the concert. So at night, we have this concert, and then we have a a competition, and then we have a concert with Hive, who are coming in from California and who are incredible. And we encourage people to dress up and do Halloween songs, but they certainly don't have to. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so much fun to see the groups that really dig into the theme. I mean, I know we have lots of competition themes, but when, when people really get into the, the Halloween spooky costume theme, it, it's really fun to watch. It's really fun to just kind of observe. And I really love that you guys added the the busking, the street singing aspect of it, because I think that's kind of becoming a lost art, especially for acapella groups. People seem to be hesitant to just go out and street sing. And I know I mean, that's where I got started, and I'm sure that you've done plenty of it yourself. What do you think the benefit of doing these street scenes? Other than, you know, yes, people will drop some money in the bucket, and if you're good, you might actually go home with enough to really make it worth your while. What do you think we learn? What do you think we get from doing things like street singing? You learn to interact with the crowd who are literally on the same level as you in this case. We don't have an extra stage. They're just standing on the street. Not the, not the actual street. It's actually a little park, which is really <laughs> cute. But you learn to deal with all kinds of distractions. No matter what's going on around you, you have to keep performing and doing your best to engage the crowd who are surrounded by a million other things going on. And why do they want to stop and watch you? Exactly. It's to get them to come over at least maybe get them to throw you some money, but just to entertain them in the midst of so much other stuff going on. Awesome. So with all of your experience, you've pretty much been around to see the entire current generation of acapella. I think you've been able to see back when Casa was first forming and, you know, the rise of all of the big names. You saw them all before they were big names, as as I remember. I just knew them when they were people. You've gotten to see the evolution. What do you think groups and the community needs to focus on next to just keep this momentum going? I'm not a fan of this emo trend, as you've... (laughs) I don't think things necessarily need to be all light and fluffy and Taylor Swift. There's so much good music out there that is also entertaining. And my goal as a performer and as a producer is always to, like I said, make to connect with the audience. You want to connect with the audience. Where are they? Uplift them. And so it, it needs to be about them and where they are and what you're giving to them rather than what you're giving to yourself. <laughs> that is something that seems pretty persistent right now that I would like to see change or change back. I'd love to see you and I, I'm sure, have both seen this evolution from almost no groups with all women to so many incredible groups with all women. And so Mm -hmm. I love that. And I want to see that continue. I mean, I do remember a time in the not so distant future, and maybe it's still happening, where people would say just all sorts of derogatory things about women's groups and, and what their limitations were. And we've broken through so many of those limitations. And I can't wait to see what happens. Right. Yeah. I mean, 
I was in an all-female group in college. And at the time, it was just like, oh, you know, that's so cute that you get together with your friends, almost like patting me on the head and look at all. And it was either you were cute or you were sexy, but not really sexy because you were 20 and you didn't really know what that meant. But now, yeah, we're seeing all of these groups that are really digging into their identities. And instead of seeing any, you know, vocal range limitations as limitations, they are working with what they do have and not focusing on what maybe we don't have. And I think what we don't have is a pretty small area. But no, I think with groups like Hive, who I'm super excited to see again, there's no apologetic feeling when they get on stage. They're like, this is who we are. We are badass and we are great. And we're here to give you a good show. And I think that's actually a really new thing for us as women. We just, everyone was so apologetic before. And now everyone's like, nope, I'm, I'm not apologizing for who I am. Yeah, because they think like a band and they think like individuals within a band and not a group that has any lack, which they don't. So absolutely. And what do you think? I mean, we've seen some groups now that have been around for decades. Wow, decades. I've, I've been following some of these groups. For women out there, I think, yes, we're new and we've, we've seen a lot of women's group pop up and then kind of have this like short-term success and then fade away. What do you think leads to long-term success for these groups? You know, I was just thinking about this recently and I think it is just persistent. There are a lot of groups who sort of form, they'll often be in different parts of the country, which can work, but it's difficult, it's challenging, and then stay together for a little while and then break up. And I'm sure there are myriad reasons why that happens, but just committing to working through all the difficulties. Someone said to me once that uh, being in a band is like being in a marriage, and it really is. You have to process through all of those interviews personal things to come out the other end and come out stronger and that's probably one of the biggest challenges and then also being willing to do the grunt work being willing to do management being willing to self-manage being willing to do your own booking even when you're getting told no a million times uh, pushing through that and then we actually we haven't touched on this yet at all but you're also a graphic designer where do you think a visual brand a cohesive brand falls into all of this I think it's important. <laughs> I think that <laughs> that everyone should put some time into a thoughtful, thoughtfully creating their brand and then making sure that it's consistent, updating it as needed. But now when we're on so many platforms, so many social media platforms and putting out content for promotion and all sorts of things that making sure your design is consistent and that it's done by someone who's competent is is pretty important. So I shouldn't just be making my my logo in paint, the free version of paint then. <laughs> Does that still exist? <laughs> yes. That's my answer. Does that still exist? <laughs> Awesome. Well, Amy, it's been really lovely to speak with you. I'm sh I'm not sure if everyone realizes just how early we've gotten up on the weekend to do this, but I appreciate that you did. And I appreciate that all of the things that you have done, and I hope that more people start paying attention to the people that keep things going. I think this community only survives on the backs of people like you. So thank you for everything that you've done and continue to do. And I look forward to seeing you in Salem in October. Yeah, see you then, if not before.
So today, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about inner circles and the group relationships that form and how to manage some of those issues of feeling left out or how to sort of manage that process of people who might, I don't know, pair up or get along better in a group. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and I think this isn't an issue that affects just women, but it does seem to be a little bit more prevalent in all female groups or groups with women in them. For sure. And I think that inherently, I don't think that people being better friends with certain people is a bad thing. Obviously, you have your own personal relationships and your own likes and dislikes and there are going to be people that you get along with better. A problem comes when that impacts the group dynamic and causes other people to feel left out. So what do you think can be done to minimize the impact of hurt feelings, really? So something that we did with euphemism because euphemism is the group that I'm with that is a Cal group so it's not really for work um, we do get paid sometimes but it's not like our job in my other groups that are more my job we have rules and you follow them regardless of what's happening and kind of like egos and hurt feelings are supposed to be left at the door or discussed in a pretty professional manner which I'm, most of the time I can trust people to do but in my not professional groups we started checking in with people frequently because I think a, a lot of what happens um, when people start to get really upset or there's blow-ups it's because they've been upset for a really long time and they just kind of let something yeah. go for way too long and then they blow up at everybody. So we've kind of made a habit of checking in with each other and kind of nipping it in the bud. And now we are a little bit older, so it's easier to do that. You know, we've, we've grown up a lot, but it, it's less harboring ill will. Yeah. And just being honest with each other and learning how to speak to each other without insults, and without personal attacks. It's very rare that there's really a need to throw out a personal attack against somebody in your group, yeah. in this community, anywhere. I mean, we're all here for one purpose, and that is to sing and to enjoy singing and to share our music with the world. That's really at the core. That's our purpose. So yeah, it's it's hard. It is hard because people, we are yeah. people, we're human and people have, humans have feelings. Right. But it is, we found that it is way better if the group uh, environment is just set up so that people know if there's a problem, instead of taking up everyone's time in the middle of rehearsal to go through, you know, air all your drama, go to the director, go to whoever's in charge and say, hey, I'm, I'm having a problem with this. Yeah. We've even gone so far as to not mention things in rehearsal uh, mm. because what was happening when we were younger we had some younger members in the group is they would have opinions on everything and that was just making it and then they would wax on about it for 15 minutes when really it should have just been an email to the director afterwards so that helps yeah I think that also speaks a, a bit to choosing a good director right and having I mean being the director of a group isn't just a sort of uh, figurehead right that person has a lot of responsibility to the group dynamic and they really are the leader of, of a ship right, right. They, they are the sort of north star what people follow and and they set the tone and the direction and i think electing or nominating like a person who has like really good people skills is pretty important very important in fact i just had a conversation with a friend the other day the government is in the middle of a shutdown and there's been some complaints about leadership and who's running things and we ended up in this conversation about how when someone is good at what they do they get promoted and when you get promoted, it usually is a management role. And not everyone that's good at what they do is also a good leader. And also not everyone that's popular is a good leader. And we're seeing this problem everywhere. It's not just an acapella. But what happens is you see, you know, the best singer in the group then becomes the music director or the president, and they might not actually have the skills for that job. Agreed. Just because you're a great singer does not mean you're a great leader. And that there's qualities to both that are great. And that's not to malign anyone. But I really do encourage groups to 
choose leaders based on their leadership skills and not on their musicality or how much everybody likes them. Yeah, I think you can get into trouble that way because I think very quickly you become the person that people don't like. Yes. In that scenario. <laughs> yes. And, you know, on that note, when you do take on a leadership role, you do have to be ready for people to be unhappy with you. And that was hard for me when I started taking on leadership roles in this community because sometimes you're doing what's right and you're the one that's in the thick of it and you know that that's what has to be done and everyone else and their mother and grandmother are going to have opinions about what you did and not all of them are going to be in agreement. And they're not going to be shy about sharing them. No. Yeah, yeah they're not going to be shy about sharing them. <laughs> Never. And I would say too that sort of put to your point, I feel like being honest from the beginning and if you're concerned that there's some issue or some drama that's going on and just going up to whoever is involved in that drama and being like, hey, I'm I'm sensing this, I'm feeling this, can we talk about it? Mm -hmm. and let's just get it out there because I don't know, wounds fester in the dark. Yes, they do. And the only way to sort of make that resolve is by shining a light on it. And so yep. I, I guess I would encourage people to just talk and not talk to the people involved, not periphery people. Yep. And you know, I've made that mistake in previous groups and in, in previous leadership roles. I've made that mistake where I talk to everyone but the problem because I'm afraid. Like, what are they going to do? Bite me? Yell at me? <laughs> I mean, but sometimes it's good to have a little periphery conversation to kind of make a plan, get some advice, especially if you're new to leadership and you not dealt with this specific problem before. But at the end of the day, you do really need to just attack the problem from the root. And that's going to involve a lot of uncomfortable conversations, which is part of being a leader. <laughs> <laughs> I think too, it's also part of learning how to be, to deal with other people. Like that's just something that we have to do all the time and learning how to give and receive constructive criticism is an important, right. uh, important skill. Right. We have a very a strict rule. Um, Charlie, my husband is our music director and he gives out notes and he is very, very clear. It's not like, oh, well, that could have been better, but I'm not going to say like who it was. No, it's like you were flat on that one or you sound like you didn't really look at this one. Like maybe we just put it away and practice next week. Can you be ready for next week? And we learned to take those conversations and not take them personally. And, and it's never a personal attack, but it's always very technical and very matter of fact, straight, no dancing around it. And yeah. we're much more productive because of it. You know, and then at the end of the day, Charlie lets us pick on him a little bit. He lets us tease him. Yeah. And that gets out kind of a little bit of the, you know, the ego bruising that inevitably comes with it. For sure. I think being able to wear different hats of like, now I'm putting on my friend hat. Yeah. And now I'm putting on my director hat is, mm -hmm. is an important thing to be able to do in that role. Because you could be friends with somebody and you can still be mad at them or be frustrated <laughs> with their actions or any of those things. Like, welcome to my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to every relationship, right? I mean, yep. whether it's a male-female relationship, a female-female relationship or a male-male relationship all of these are human dynamics right and not vocal dynamics <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you know and I think it's the attitude that you cultivate in the group so you know in all of my groups I don't expect everyone to be best friends I don't expect everyone to be my best friend when it happens and it's fantastic but we all have this understanding that we are all to respect each other and to make it an environment that everyone is comfortable in you don't have to come out to dinner with us you don't have to you know do some social things with us we'll invite you yeah but but, you know, some of us are going to end up being closer than others, and that's not shade on somebody else. So what would you recommend for somebody who might feel on the outs when they want to be more on the ins? It takes a little bit of, of effort. And oftentimes, the people that feel a little bit on the outs may be introverted or shy. But it does take... I'm also... So I'm straight down the middle, extrovert, introvert. I can understand both sides because I feel both sides. And sometimes it takes...
takes. Okay, hey guys, I'm planning this. Why don't you come? Inviting people or saying, hey, before rehearsal, I'm going to grab dinner. Does someone want to come and meet me? Yeah. And just throwing those invitations out there. And if people routinely turn you down, then that's a bigger problem. But <laughs> but usually that's all it takes. And that's that's how my group has operated forever. A lot of adult groups are drinking groups with an acapella problem. They, they have wine and, and I don't malign that at all. Like that's a thing. And sometimes yeah, I sure. do now have wine at rehearsal. The older I get, the more I seem to need it. Little, uh, <laughs> liquid courage. <laughs> but we were never, you know, my groups were never like that. We came in, we did the work and we went home. We started getting together. There was even at the very beginning of euphemism, there was one of the girls and I, we lived so far away from rehearsal, but our our jobs were close to rehearsals so we would find ourselves like getting out of work at 4 35 o'clock and having nothing to do until 7 30 so we would hang out and that was fun yeah sure and so of course we ended up with some inside jokes and extra stories and but it's not making people feel excluded so it's you know having those relationships in your group but also not rubbing it into everybody's face that like oh we are now best friends and we're better than all of you right and it's taking the time to get to know the other people in your group just because yeah. it's a person you didn't click with right away doesn't mean that there's not a friendship there. Absolutely. I mean, my own marriage, my own business partner is a very good example of that. When Charlie joined Euphemism, that was the first thing that we worked together on. It was myself and Joe Kang, who's the only other founding member left in Euphemism. And we were kind of in charge and we had just brought on three people with Charlie. And the girls came in, they knew their music, they were there on time, they were committed right from minute one. The get-go. And Charlie was not. Charlie wasn't sure if we were a good enough group for him he was going through some personal changes he was moving he was going through all of these things and so he was missing rehearsals he was questioning a lot about the way we did things in a way that made us feel bad we actually had a conversation about maybe kicking charlie out of the group (gasps) and i just think back if we hadn't given him a chance and we hadn't talked to him and we hadn't given him a chance to get to know us and for us to get to know him my life would be very different right now No doubt. So, but yeah, we took the time to get to know what was bugging him. And he expressed his concerns about our arrangements, which in early times, I did some really weird things with arranging. And he thought it was because I didn't know how to arrange. So we were both making assumptions about each other when I was arranging and I was doing things out of the ordinary to accommodate some of our members that weren't stronger musicians or strong singers. He thought I was doing it on purpose. And then he actually sat down with me and and wrote a real arrangement. And he was like, oh, oh, you do know how to arrange. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So I wanted to ask what your opinion is on sort of the other side of it. Not the people who are feeling left out, but do you think there's a responsibility for the people who might be the social leaders of the group to bring people into the fold? Yes. Yeah. What level of responsibility do you feel like those people have and how can we encourage them to do that? I actually just talked to my high school students about this yesterday because I was teaching a class full of theater students and they were all mega extroverts. And I said, okay. Because usually I split the class and I talk about networking and things like half and half, like how to do it as an extrovert, how to do it as an introvert. So we talked a lot about making the introverts and the the shyer people feel comfortable. And whether that's making sure, just being cognizant that you're not hijacking conversation because the socialites will just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Mm -hmm. And the introverts are happy to just kind of sit there and never try to interrupt. So be careful not to hijack the conversation and also come ready to make this person feel part of the conversation. 
question. And that often means asking them a question. And that could be as simple as, hey, how was your day? Or, hey, how are you feeling about this music? It doesn't have to be, you know, what are your hopes and dreams? But just a way to make sure that you are going a little bit out of your way to involve them in the conversation. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think both sides have a responsibility, right? Relationships (laughs) are not one side. And both the more sort of dynamic, perhaps, personality maybe needs to use that strength of theirs to use a political, you know, terminology to cross the aisle and to reach out to somebody who might be less inclined to do that. And then for the person who might be less inclined, maybe stretch a little, stretch a little and try and and open yourself up to that opportunity to connect with somebody. Yep. And shout out to all the introverts. I know that just being in these groups is probably a little bit of a stretch for you, especially because when people see you as a performer, they assume that you are an extrovert. And I get that a lot too. And people don't realize like, nope, I need my recharge time. I need my time away from everybody. Mm -hmm. So just being respectful of how everybody best communicates and best operates and having these conversations. Rehearsal is important and learning the notes are important, but so are the conversations. And we, my groups tend to stop and talk at least a couple of times a year about how we're feeling and things that we've liked and things that we didn't like. And you learn a lot about people that way because sometimes people will just keep showing up to gigs, but there's something that really bugs them and they don't feel like there's ever an appropriate time to bring it up. So opening up that conversation and making that a welcome room where no one is being judged and everyone can just kind of say how they're feeling. I think that also points to the benefit of things like retreats, opportunities for the group to get together in a personal capacity that has music tied in, because of course that is the way mm-hmm. in a lot of, I mean, in most cases, I'm guessing that <laughs> that people are connecting, but to have an opportunity to sort of forced opportunity to connect, mm-hmm. I think helps combat some of these issues. Yep, absolutely. I mean, the long, yeah, the longer you let it sit, the worse it's going to get. Sure. Being upfront and nipping it at the bud. It's really the best way, even if it's like kind of uncomfortable sometimes. It, it's just going to get more uncomfortable the longer you wait. Absolutely. And that wraps up this week's episode of Vocal Perspective. Again, a huge thank you to Amy Malkoff for joining us today, and we hope you're taking something positive away from this week. We'll be back next week with Gina Deaton, the director of HR for CASA. Have a great week.